Well, good morning. So glad to be with you guys here at New City Church. Hope you're doing well. And of course, if you're not doing well, just want to say we're so grateful that you chose to spend some of your Sunday with us, and I pray that you would be encouraged over our next few minutes together. A uh, funny story that happened a few months ago uh, in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, this older woman, late 50s, early 60s, was going to play pickleball uh, in the park and a pickup game. And I don't know anything about pickleball, uh, but I was told this week by a pickleball enthusiast that pickleball is much more about uh, consistency than athleticism. Which means, it's kind of, if you have no idea what it is, it's played on a tennis court, but it's in a smaller a area, and which means you can be of a wide variety of ages and still be good at it. And so this lady was going to play some pickup pickleball, and she sees uh, three guys in a court. They were playing singles, so it was two guys playing. One guy was sitting on the bench, and so she asked if she could join them and they could play doubles. And so they play a few games. Apparently, her and her partner won at least the last game. She doesn't think anything of it, but as they are playing, a bunch of people start gathering around and taking pictures. After the game is over, she's talking to these guys. Everyone's kind of freaking out. She comes to find out that she is playing pickleball with three Pittsburgh Steelers. You know, if you have no idea who that is, that isn't the NFL team in Pittsburgh. And not only is she playing with Steelers, but she's playing with one of them, TJ Watt, who was the defensive player of the year in the entire NFL last year. So these guys are really good, and she has no idea what's going on. And eventually, she starts talking to them. It was this whole news story. She got a picture. She was like, they were really, really nice and really friendly. I mean, they're tall and really in shape, but I had no idea. She had no idea who she was playing with. She did not at all think she was playing with professional athletes who are pretty much superheroes in the city that she is in. Did not expect that at all. And today, as we continue our time through the Gospel of Mark, as we're going to see Jesus being suffered and crucified this morning, or leading up to it, we are laid before the question that we are going to look at this text, and this text this morning is this, that what kind of king is Jesus? Like, who is this king? How does he act? What does he do? And does he act how you would expect him to act? Or is it differently? Who is this man that these people are finding themselves before. What kind of king is Jesus actually? And that's what we'll be looking at this morning. And so as we begin, we'll be in Mark chapter 15, starting in verse 1. If you have a Bible, you can go ahead and turn there. If not, there's a black one around you. And if you do not own a Bible, we encourage you to take one of those black ones home. It is our gift to you. I want to give you a really quick uh, introduction or a little history behind what's going on here. Have you ever been confused about the trials of Jesus, why he went through multiple trials here? We are almost in the gospel of Mark. We're going to end in a couple of weeks. If you were with us last week, Jesus was arrested in the middle of the night in tried by the Jewish legal council. Of course, they find him guilty. And now as daybreak is occurring on Friday morning, the beginning of Passover, the massive Jewish festival that happened in Jerusalem every year, they are now having to give Jesus over to the Roman authorities to try to get him convicted in a Roman court. Now you might wonder why, why is that the case? Real quickly, it's helpful to know that the Roman prefect or the Roman governor of a particular area of the Roman empire uh, had uh, the power of life and death over everyone in his province that was not a Roman citizen. So Jesus, just like most of the Jewish people, though not all, was not actually a Roman citizen. And so if there was ever a big capital case that had to be decided, it was up to the governor. And really, whatever they wanted to do, they were allowed to do. They could kind of make up the rules as they see fit. And so Jesus is not a citizen. And so they have to get Jesus before this governor so that he can make a decision. 
Now, what's interesting, again, is that a Roman governor would not put a Jew on trial for violating Jewish religious traditions. They do not care. Of course, the Jewish religious leaders found Jesus guilty of blasphemy, but that's not going to hold up in a Roman court because he couldn't care less. However, they would have not tolerated threats to the temple in Jerusalem because that was a big money-making machine, and they wouldn't uh, tolerate any sort of political ramification matters. If there was any hint of an uprising, then they would want to uh, make sure that was taken care of as well. And so you'll see when Jesus is charged before Pilate, the current governor, when Jesus is on the scene, uh, you are going to see that he is now kind of being reframed as this king of the Jews. Uh, that, in other words, that if you're going to follow Jesus, and Jesus is this king, this Messiah, well, then you can't follow the Roman governor this or the Roman, uh, the Roman Caesar. So this would be a problem. And so this is what they're trying to get Jesus convicted of in the Roman court. Because if he claims to be a king, if Jesus does, well, that's not going to go well for Rome. And so that's what's going to happen. Last thing, it's just important to know that Pilate, the governor of the Judean area, didn't live in Jerusalem, was not typically in Jerusalem, but every year would travel down for Passover to help try to keep law and order. So we do know historically he actually would have also been at Passover or been in Jerusalem during this time. And so that's kind of a little bit of background information. Let's pick up the story. Mark chapter 15, starting in verse 1. Again, Mark 14 ended with Jesus being found guilty, unsurprisingly, by the Jewish legal, and legal authorities. And now they're going to try to get him charged in the Roman court and get him killed. And so here's what it says. Mark chapter 15, starting in verse 1. As soon as it was morning, having held a meeting with the elders, scribes, and the whole Sanhedrin, which is, again, the Jewish legal council, the chief priests tied Jesus up, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate. So again, they had this sham trial. We talked about this last week in the middle of the night. Jesus is condemned for blasphemy, which, of course, in the Jewish thought is condemnable by death. And so they have to hand him over to the Romans because the Jews, while they were allowed to self-govern themselves in a lot of ways, capital punishment was something they were not allowed to do that could only be handed down by the Roman authorities. And so that's why they are going to do this. They're going to hand Jesus over. Now, an another thing, too, you might be wondering, wasn't Jesus really, really popular? Like, how did this actually like, how did the Jewish people allow this to happen? Well, again, it's helpful to note that if Jesus is convicted in a Roman court, then the people who were really big fans of Jesus, the crowds that really liked Jesus, would now no longer just be opposing the Jewish leaders, but they would also be opposing the Roman leaders, which is not going to end well for you if you were to do that. So it'd be a lot harder for them to stand up for Jesus, if you will, if the Romans are also against him. So they hand him over the Pilate. Then it says this, verse 2. So Pilate asked him, being Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? He answered him, Jesus answered him, you say so. And the chief priest accused him of many things. Pilate questioned him again, aren't you going to answer? Look how many things they are accusing you of. But Jesus still did not answer. And so Pilate was amazed. Now, again, if you're familiar with the Gospels, it's worth pointing out that Mark's account is the shortest and the briefest of all Gospels. And so there's a lot of more things going on that he doesn't talk about here. But here he focuses on Pilate and his surprise that Jesus is not defending himself, right? He's the governor of the Judean region. He asked Jesus if what, is he, what, if what Jesus is accused of is actually true. 
Literally in Greek, he says this, you are the king of the Jews. That's what he literally says in Greek. Now, obviously, he doesn't believe that Jesus is the king of the Jews, but it's kind of a statement question asking Jesus if this is actually true. Again, because Pilate would not care about a blasphemy charge, but he would care if there were political implications. Now, what I want to do real quick is to paint this picture. It'll be on the screen in Luke 23, starting in verse 1 through 3. Luke gives us a little bit more detail about what's going on in this trial. It says this in verse 1. It says, Then their whole assembly, this is the Sanhedrin, rose up and brought him before Pilate. They began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation, opposing payment of taxes to Caesar, and saying that he himself is the Messiah, a king. So they're kind of misconstruing some of the things that Jesus had taught. And then verse 3, it says this, So Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? He'd answered him, You say so. Are you the king of the Jews? He answered them, you say so. So again, it's worth noting as well that Rome and much of the ancient world uh, did not separate religion and politics. So this is why, for example, many Christians were persecuted in first century Rome because even if you weren't like a devout follower of all the various Roman gods, a lot of the things you did were revolved around sacrifices and religious pagan holidays. And so to withdraw from those things would almost appear as anarchist, if you will. And so again, this thing about following Jesus, the assumption is, that if you follow Jesus, then your allegiance is going to be to him instead of Rome, and that could be a problem. And so Paul, or so Pilate asked Jesus, are you the king of the Jews, what they're claiming that you are trying to be? And Jesus says, you say so. Now, again, this should be taken not really as a direct rebuttal to Pilate, as more so a if you say so, or whatever you say. So again, Mark's account is short, But what we are meant to be seeing here is that Jesus is silent and submitting to Pilate and whatever Pilate wants to do. That's what's happening here. Now, his silence is not a silence of defeat. In fact, you can read in other gospels, if you won't read in Mark, that Pilate gives Jesus a chance multiple times to defend himself against the accusations that are being brought against him, but he never does. Again, Jesus is fulfilling the role of the suffering servant. In Isaiah chapter 50 through 65, uh, Isaiah the prophet writes about the suffering servant, and Jesus is going to fulfill that role. In Isaiah 53, it'll be on the screen, it says this, He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb led to the slaughter, and like a sheep silent before her shearers, he did not open his mouth. He does not defend himself against any accusation, And then in Mark, as we read, it says that Pilate was amazed. Now, the question is, why would Pilate be amazed? What's likely happening here is that he's likely amazed because Jesus has the right to defend himself against these charges. And as we'll see in a second, Pilate isn't convinced that Jesus is a threat or Jesus is what he's actually being accused of. And so if Jesus were to defend himself, he could essentially end this trial and get Jesus off the hook. But because Jesus says nothing in his own defense, Pilate has no choice but to let the trial continue. Let the trial continue. And so that's what happens. Pilate must move forward. And so what we see happening here right in the beginning of this scene is this, that Jesus doesn't do what kings normally do. So again, for asking this question, what kind of king is Jesus? What we see right away it is he doesn't do things that you would expect a king, someone in authority, let alone just the average person to actually do. That Jesus here has the opportunity to defend himself, to clear his name, and yet he does not say anything. He does not say anything knowing what this will 
mean, right? If you are accused of the things that these uh, Jewish religious leaders are accusing you of, you are going to die, right? The implication is here that he's trying to start some sort of uprising. If you do not defend yourself, you know what this is going to mean for you, yet he does not do anything. He does not use his power for his own gain, especially in this case where he could rightly do it. He says nothing and he allows it to happen. He doesn't do what kings normally do. He does not defend himself. He does not fight for himself. He does not accuse other people because he could get away from it. He says nothing. And then we'll continue Mark chapter 15, verse 6. Here's what happens next. It says, at the festival, this is Passover, which is a week-long festival. This is why all these people are in Jerusalem. Pilate used to release for the people a prisoner whom they requested. So apparently it was custom for Pilate every year to release a prisoner at Passover. Now, Pilate likely assumes that many religious leaders, as we'll see here in a second, don't like Jesus. He thinks that, and he's probably witnessed and heard that a lot of the people like Jesus, and so he thinks the problem is likely having to do with envy and jealousy by the religious leaders. And so he assumes that's the problem. And so this way, right, if he lets Jesus go, he can do his, his thing that he does every year to make the Jews happy, and he can get off the hook of trying to kill a guy who he's not quite sure is guilty, and he's probably somewhat nervous that if he does condemn him, what might happen with all the people that are following him? He might be thinking, well, this is my way to get out of it because a lot of people probably like Jesus, and so he'll be selected as the one to be released. But there's a problem. Verse 7, it says this, There was one named Barabbas who was in prison with rebels who had committed murder during the rebellion, or some translations say the insurrection. The crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do for them as was his custom, this yearly release of a prisoner at Passover. Verse 9, Pilate answered them, Do you want me to release this king of the Jews for you? For he knew it was because of envy that the chief priests had handed him over. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd so that he would release Barabbas to them instead. And so, again, the religious leaders are disturbed the crowd. They're trying to get these people to go against Jesus. And then they ultimately choose a murderer named Barabbas to be released instead of Jesus. Now, the question is why? Right? If you're thinking, isn't Jesus, I don't know if you ever thought about this, isn't Jesus like this really well-known guy? All these people have heard of him. They've been impacted by them. A lot of them have been healed by them. They've heard his stories and his teachings. How in the world does some random guy named Barabbas, like literally, honestly, actually get released instead of Jesus? So I want to explain something really quick because I think this is helpful for us to understand the context of what's going on here. Right? It's important to know, again, that the Jews did not like the Romans. And the Romans did not like the Jews or their leaders. Uh, we don't know what sort of rebellion Barabbas took part in, but it's very likely that the original readers did because Mark just calls it the rebellion or the insurrection. And so they're probably familiar with what exactly was going on. But regardless, there is a very good chance that Barabbas was actually liked and respected for what he did. We don't sure, we're not sure what he did, but he stood up against the oppressive Roman regime that has killed and stolen from and beaten and betrayed your own families and your own friends. You, if you're a non-Jewish Roman citizen, you have stories about how you were unfairly treated and hurt. Maybe somebody even in your family or friend group was killed. 
you do not like them. And so when you have these groups of uprisings, you would, we would stay, we would be like, yes, uh, get, get the man, like, let us get our freedom. You would be really encouraged when this happened. And so even if some of these people didn't actually personally know who Barabbas was, they knew who he stood for. They absolutely would have thought that Barabbas was justified in doing whatever he did against Rome. And so again, even if they didn't all know him, they would have appreciated him. So it wouldn't be too difficult to try to get this man released. In fact, if we're honest, this Barabbas guy is, is like the perfect movie hero that we all love, right? His back is up against the wall. He's outnumbered by the Roman Empire. Uh, he fights against, he, in his case, he doesn't defeat the bad guys, but in movies that go well, the, the good guys have to win. Uh, and so they, they fight the bad guys, typically with violence, to stand up against them. He is the idyllic macho man, I think, if we are being honest. And I can't help wonder personally how much I would have wanted Barabbas to be released as well. Listen, this Jesus guy has done some cool things. He's taught some really awesome things. But this Barabbas guy, he stood up for us. I can't help but wonder if I also in the crowd would say, release him too. In fact, one last thing of information I think is really interesting. Barabbas actually literally means, or what his name means is son of the father. This is what Barabbas means. And so in no doubt there is bitter irony that the true and innocent actual son of the father gets traded out while a murderer gets set free. In fact, even in this text, you can begin to see the ideas of atonement being laid here. That Jesus is literally taking our place. The innocent son of the father is taking, away, is taking place of the guilty son of the Father, Jesus in our place. And so again, this idea of, of who is, what kind of king is Jesus, we also see happening here that Jesus doesn't act how kings normally act. He doesn't act how kings normally act. See, typically you serve a king, a king doesn't serve you. And it's certainly not willingly. Maybe a king for political reasons or to get a group behind him might do certain things, but not willingly. And yet this king, this man named Jesus, is willingly doing this for us. It's not at all how you expect a king who has all these rights and all these privileges, who's supposed to have all this authority, would do for others. It's not what you would expect. I don't know why, but it, it kind of makes me, remind, makes me think of this, like for me, I, I'm the type of person when it comes to like movies and TV shows, I might have said this before, um, I am very much pro like suffering. I want the bad guys to win. And I want evil to win out, right? It's just like, why? I don't, because that's life. Like, it's just suffering, right? And so I, I was advised not to share this, but in, full, in, in the thing of full transparency, I'm going to. Even when I was a kid, I was this way. Like, I would watch movies and cartoons, like animated cartoons, like I, The Fox and the Hound, think, what comes to mind, whatever, where you have like these, these animals, these pets, right? And something bad would happen to them, and you're supposed to be like, oh, I'm so sorry, like you. And I'm like, no suffer. That's life, right? Like Stuart Little came out when I was a kid and it's like this mouse gets adopted by this family. And at some point, like these other mouse people pretend to be his parents, like come and take him away. And I'm like, good. And don't come back. Like, like, bye. Right. And so I became a pastor. And so and that's what I, right? that's probably not what you would expect. And if you're new here, it's like, and we're not coming back because that's weird. Right. That's not what you think. Now, again, it's not to the same degree here, but Jesus does the things that you would not expect. But again, no king willingly trades his life for a murderer. None. 
Yet that's what Jesus does. I think this is what Paul had in mind in Romans chapter 5. It'll be on the screen when he's talking about Jesus and who he, uh, Jesus and who he is and what he's done for us. In Romans chapter 5, a well-known passage in verse 6 through 8, it says this. Therefore, or it says, for it, while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Like literally being substituted with an ungodly man here, verse 7. For rarely will someone die for a just person. Though for a good person, perhaps someone might even dare to die. But God proves his own love for us in this. And that we, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This here, again, is the picture of the gospel, the good news of what Jesus did for us. You could sum it up with this way, particularly in this text. The gospel could be defined as Jesus in our place. The perfect, righteous Son of God, who perfectly fulfilled the law, laid down his life, cared for others, is now submitting to a punishment he didn't deserve. So the rest of us Barabbases, the rest of us sons and daughters of the Father, who are not innocent, get to be set innocent because of what he did. That's what's happening here. And then in Mark chapter 15, verse 12, we'll continue to read, Here's what happens next. Said Pilate asked them again, asking the crowd, then what do you want me to do with the one you call king of the Jews? Again, they shouted, crucify him. Pilate said to them, why? What, done, what wrong has he done? But they all shouted all the more, crucify him. And what's interesting, what you see throughout this trial is that you see three times that Pilate lobbies for Jesus but then, of course, eventually he ends up handing him over. Now, again, to be clear, uh, Pilate is not being sympathetic towards Jesus or towards the Jews. Uh, we know historically they didn't like each other. Pilate actually reigned from 26 to 37 BC. If you read historically some of the things that happened, like they weren't good. And so he's not trying to be like, oh, feel bad for this Jesus guy. He doesn't really care. But what he does care about is trying to keep the peace and trying to maybe not uh, crucify people who didn't deserve it because that could be a problem problem for them. However, we also know this, that he is a politician who, if he can't keep the peace, will be dealt by and replaced with by someone else from Rome. So he has a job to do, whether or not he thinks it's wise or best. He has to, in some cases, kind of give over to the crowd to keep them happy. <laughs> and so while he personally doesn't seem, really sees any real threat for Jesus, doesn't really think what he's being accused of, it was really a matter worth being him crucified or really for anything to happen to him, there is political value in giving the crowd what they want in this instance, particularly with Passover, with so many people being there. And so again, it's just important to remember that Pilate could have stopped this. Jesus is a non-Roman citizen. He has the jurisdiction to do whatever he wants to to Jesus, but he does not. And he finds Jesus, although he thinks he's not guilty, he lets the trial go on. And then verse 15, we continue reading, it then says this. It says, wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. And after having Jesus flogged, he handed him over to be crucified. And so what we're reading here is that Jesus is now on the way to his death. 
And just to share again briefly what this flogging entailed, uh, because it's kind of quick. Um, first century Roman historian Josephus uh, at one point wrote, wrote this. He says that he tells us that the prisoner was stripped and bound to a post and beaten with a leather whip woven with bits of bone or metal. This is what would happen before you were crucified. No maximum number of strokes was prescribed, and so he could be beaten to the discretion of whatever they want at the moment. The scourging lacerated and stripped the flesh often exposing bones and entrails. One of its purposes was to shorten the duration of the crucifixion, but scourging was so brutal that some prisoners died before reaching the cross. Women were exempted from either, from, from either suffering or witnessing the, the flagium. So if you're a woman, you weren't even allowed this to happen, which according to Sotonius, which was another historian, uh, Sotonius says that this, uh, this, this scourging horrified the emperor Domitian so much that he would not even watch. This emperor was a later emperor in the Roman world in the first century who was also very brutal and evil. He would not even watch it because he thought it was so terrible. This is what Jesus experienced before his crucifixion, willingly for us. And then it says this, verse 16. It says, The soldiers led him away into the palace, that is, the governor's residence, and called the whole company together. The company is about 600 soldiers. And they have a lot more of them because it's Passover, and so he calls the company together. It says, They dressed him, being Jesus, in a purple robe, twisted together a crown of thorns, and put it on him. And they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews. They were hitting him on the head with a stick and spitting on him. Getting down on their knees, they were playing him, paying him homage. And after they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple robe and put his clothes on him. So here in this text, we see the prediction of what Jesus said earlier in Mark chapter 10 when he said that him and his disciples are going to go up to Jerusalem. He told him that the Son of Man will be handed over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death. Then they will hand him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him. And he will rise after three days. That's what he told his disciples would happen in Mark chapter 10, and that's what's happening now. Uh, arrested by his own, handed over to the Gentiles, to the Romans, and he will be Killed. And so Jesus is mocked, and a company, again, that's about 600 soldiers, and they mockingly do to him what you would do to the Roman emperor. So they salute him, they clo clothe him in honor, they pay homage to him. Again, this is all a joke to them. And again, you see this idea of the suffering servant that Isaiah talks about being fulfilled. This will be on the screen. Isaiah chapter 50, it says this in verse 6, I give my back to those who beat me, and my cheeks to those who tore out my beard. I did not hide my face from scorn and spitting. This is what Jesus did. So again, again, what kind of king is Jesus? Well, what we see happening here is that Jesus doesn't respond how kings normally respond, right? When kings, when something happens to a king, especially if it's unjust, well, what does he do? Punish, typically kills the people that are standing up against him, and yet what does Jesus do? He takes it willingly, Right? His response was to take an unlawful torture and an unlawful execution that he could have both naturally stopped if he had defended himself in the trial before Pilate. I don't know if you knew that, but he could have naturally probably just by defending himself would have stopped what was happening here, but he chose not to. He also could have supernaturally stopped it. And of course, he chose not to, which is kind of the mocking that it gets. Can't you do this? We'll see this uh, in a couple of weeks when he's on the cross. He's like, can't you come down? Right? He could have supernaturally done whatever he wanted, yet he doesn't. He didn't. 
He doesn't respond how you would expect. In fact, this story and what Jesus did uh, is what motivated, there's a fascinating story I was reading a couple weeks ago by a Polish priest by the name of Maximilian Kolbe. He was a Polish priest who was sent to Auschwitz during World War II for hiding thousands of Polish refugees. Of course, many of them were Jews. And then he was also working with the Polish underground and publishing a lot of anti-Nazi material. So he was arrested in 1939 and released. And then in 1941 in February, he was arrested again, this time sent to Auschwitz for what he was doing. Now, this is a true story. At the end of July in 1941, one of the prisoners escapes from Auschwitz. And so in response, uh, the SS commander in charge of the Auschwitz camp, I uh, can't even say his, pronounce his name, so I'm not going to try. Uh, he picks 10 men. He has everybody come out of the next morning during their roll call, and he selects 10 men to be starved to death in an underground bunker to which, uh, to which discouraged future escapes that if you try to do this, 10 of your own people are going to die. So he calls out all these people. He ends up picking this name by the name of Franciszek Galgenetric. Again, I'm not quite sure uh, how to pronounce that. Uh, one of the men that he calls to, to, come, to come die and to uh, be starved to death. At which point he cries out, my wife and my children. Right? He was a father of two kids. And so he's freaking out that he was called. Him and Father Kolbe actually had become friends earlier in the camp. And so when this man was actually selected, Colby uh, uh, actually stood in his place volunteered in his place. Now, we know this happened. Uh, the guy that he stood in place for, Gajan out, again, I don't know how to pronounce it. He actually lived until 1995. Uh, uh, so he was, he, this was part of his story. He shared that what happened. He lived for a long time after the Holocaust. Uh, he recounted what, what Father Colby did as he stood in his place. And reportedly, he said, uh, Father Colby reportedly told him that Christ died on a cross naked. So it is only fitting that I suffer as he suffered. Then to make it worse, uh, according to an eyewitness who was the jan- one of the assistant janitors at the camp at the time, uh, he would lead the, uh, p- the 10 prisoners being starved to death in prayer uh, every day. And he was actually the last one to survive. He survived two weeks, at which point, because they needed the cell for other things, they killed him by lethal injection. And so you have here this man, uh, F- Father Colbe, uh, following the way of Jesus, quite literally, right? He did what no one would expect. He wasn't chosen to die. He wasn't wasn't chosen to starve to death. But just like Jesus, who stood in his place for condemned sinners, he said, I'll go, I'll go. And so again, as we read this text before us and we consider what kind of king is Jesus, here's what Mark 15 verses one through 20 is showing us. That Jesus isn't a normal king. He is the sacrificial king. He's not a normal king. He doesn't do what you think he would do. He doesn't respond how you think he would respond. He doesn't act how you think he would act. Yet he lays down his life for others. In our day and age, we like to talk a lot about servant leadership or even sacrificial leadership, which typically means, and this is, this is good, this is all fine and good, it typically means like being kind to people under you. So if like you're a boss or you're a manager and we kind of know that you can maybe get away with doing whatever you want or speaking to people a certain way or mistreating people a certain way, we think like a servant leader is someone who doesn't do that. That even though they're in charge, they won't like, you know, they won't be mean to you. They won't mistreat you. They'll be generous to you. We're like, that's a servant leader. But that's not what Jesus did. He didn't just like be nice to people who were under them. He literally took the fall for them. Like imagine a Fortune 500 CEO who did nothing wrong, taking the fall, being fired for something else, a decision that somebody else made. That's literally sacrificial leadership. This is what Jesus did. Right? Jesus, ironically, again, what's his charge? His charge is that he is the king 
of the Jews. But here's the reality. He's the king over everyone. And he came and laid down his life. He did what no king ever has done or ever could do. He sacrificed himself for you and for me. And so, listen, as we reflect on who Jesus is and, and what Jesus done, and maybe you think of some of the things that you're struggling with, some of the things that you're going through, maybe some of the ways that you don't measure up. Jesus came, took the place of a murderer so that you and I could experience the grace and the forgiveness of God. It's not about you. It's about him who laid down his life for us. And so, listen, this morning, maybe you're in the midst of doubts and questions. Maybe you've had a rough week or the rough couple of weeks, maybe financially, relationally, health-wise. There's a lot of things that you're struggling with. You just need to know this this morning, that Jesus loves you, that Jesus came for you, that Jesus died for you, that he sacrificed himself so that you might experience the grace of God. The gospel is this, that Jesus is in our place. The king for you and for me has come.